It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. All right, boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Ben Domenech Podcast brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. I hope that you'll rate, review, and subscribe to this one and share it with a friend if you find it of interest. Today, I have a conversation with Tom Bevan, the co-founder of Real Clear Politics, about the state of the midterms, uh, with the dynamics that are going into this election, the challenges that pollsters face within this current climate, and what people can expect after November in terms of the ability of Republicans to chart a different path for the economy. Tom Bevan of Real Clear Politics, coming up next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Tom Bevan, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Absolutely. Great to be with you. So this has been a fascinating uh, midterm for a lot of different reasons. I'm curious what you think are kind of the top line storylines that have run through over the past couple of months as we approach November? I, I think that, you know, we're sitting here, what, a couple of weeks away, three weeks away from the election. And I think the, the storyline to me is that the fundamentals of this election, which we've known about for months and months and months, are really starting, in my opinion, to sort of take hold. Mm-hmm. Um, there was this narrative that sort of burst out during the summer that, oh, this – you know, the Dobbs decision was going to change the political landscape and really give Democrats a shot at holding the House and, and keeping the Senate. And and that, uh, you know, it was it, it was a sort of a game changing event for Democrats. And people cited, you know, special elections and the referendum in Kansas and the like. And I think what we're seeing now is that was that was sort of a mirage. Mm-hmm. And I say sort of a mirage because I think it is true. It energized Democrats. And brought some Democrats home. If you look at the Biden's job approval rating, for example, he was at 38.6%, his low, all-time low in our real clear politics average, I think July 21st. And that was right around the Dobbs decision. And shortly thereafter, you know, he started picking up ground. These were Democrats coming home. These were not Republicans. These were not uh, independents that were suddenly, you know, had disapproved of Biden and, and suddenly approved. These were Democrats who who came home because of Dobbs and because of the legislative victories and the passage, you know, the the student debt forgiveness and those sorts of things, which progressives really, really wanted. He won back some some folks on the left that that uh, he had lost. Mm-hmm. However, um, the data was very clear that the economy was the number one issue. I mean, it just was, uh, has always been. And inflation has been gas prices. I mean, you know, pollsters asked this question in a variety of different ways. And it was an order of magnitude above anything else, certainly for Republicans, but even among independents. It was only among Democrats where you found they were more concerned about abortion. They were more concerned about protecting democracy. They were more concerned about gun rights or climate change or, or uh, some of these other issues. Inflation was still way down the list. And so that, I think, led them to believe that somehow this, this election had changed. And I think they're seeing now um, what we're seeing in the data is what we've seen for, for a long time, but it's being reflected. And I think some of these polls specifically, you know, the generic congressional ballot, uh, polls that have come out showing Republicans sort of 
you know, recapturing their lead and extending their lead to almost two points in a real clear politics average. So uh, I, of course, agree with you. I think that this uh, the, the fundamentals and, and getting back to it's the economy, stupid, has been kind of the the, uh, the strongest narrative this cycle. But one of the things that does seem to also be uh, an interesting part of this narrative was the effect that the uh, Trump endorsement would have within the context, particularly of these Senate primaries, uh, where we saw his backing lead to the nominations of a significant number of outsiders, political outsiders or relatively newcomers in terms of you know, a- uh, active politics. You have a lot of people who've never even stood for election for any office before um, who've ended up being the nominees in a lot of critical races. What do you think that that does? And do you think that assuming that, let's say, uh, a a significant number of them win, you know, I, I still find Arizona very difficult to predict, but I think you can pretty strongly say J.D. Vance looks to be uh, uh, coming along very strong. Herschel Walker just had a great debate. Uh, you have uh, Dr. Oz, who seems to have picked up some momentum with the problems that John Fetterman has run into in Pennsylvania. Um, you've got a series of outsider candidates. And then you've got a couple of people who have had, you know, uh, some uh, political experience before, you know, people like Mark Wayne Mullen in Oklahoma, like Adam Laxalt out in Nevada. Does this outsider presence have the possibility of really shaking up the U.S. Senate? Or do you think that there's going to be perhaps less impact than people might anticipate, uh, given just sort of the, the dynamics at play there? It's a great question. I mean, we won't know the answer to that until after the election. How many of these folks are going to end up winning? And but but I mean, certainly if they if a majority of them win, if if you do get a you know Herschel Walker in the Senate, Mehmet Oz, JD Vance, Blake Masters, then I think it does change the landscape of the Senate. You know, Mitch McConnell is going to have the same problem, even if Dem- even if Republicans have a good night. Uh, Mitch McConnell is going to have the same problem that Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi have now, which is, you know, I've got two seats and I've got, you know, mm-hmm. I've got uh, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski and Mitt Romney still there. And I mean, it's going to be a mess. And then you're going to have the, the, you know, the folks like Blake Masters who and, and J.D. Vance, who've, who've, you know, been pretty outspoken at some points during this campaign. They've sort of gone back and forth uh, with Mitch McConnell. And so I think I think it is going to present some real some real interesting issues. But, you know. I don't – the outsider thing is um, – and you look at the landscape. I mean Trump basically won all of these primaries. Everybody he endorsed came through. And I mean there were a couple of places he didn't – he didn't endorse New Hampshire, for example. But the Trumpy candidate won there. Um, you remember Missouri, he endorsed Eric and it was like – because both candidates were called Eric. So I mean there were a couple of funny little moments there. But, but by and large – Certainly, he cleared the field for someone like Herschel, you know, in... Uh, in yes, uh, yes. Yes, and so, you know, if Herschel does not get across the finish line there, um, the goal line, if we want to use the the, the football <laughs> pun, um, yeah, that's going to be one that, that's going to end up uh, on Trump. That's a that's a race that, that they, the Republicans probably should win in a year like this. Again, with you look at all the whatever the metrics you want to look at, Joe Biden's job approval rating, inflation numbers, I mean, all this stuff, direction of the country, it's all favoring Republicans. And so if they don't win, uh, you know, a few of these seats, um, and it, it, what's fascinating to, to me about this, Ben, is that you've got situations where in that race in particular, uh, 
you know, Brian Kemp is leading Stacey Abrams by seven, eight, nine points. It's pretty pretty consistently among all the polls. There's no yeah. poll that really they've they've really clustered around the idea he, that he could win by ten. Yeah. He could win by ten, he could win by twelve. And it's like, so you think to yourself, okay, if Kemp wins by twelve, is there really a scenario where where Herschel Walker doesn't win by a point or two? Yeah. Is he really gonna run 13, 14 points behind Brian Kemp? Are there really that many Republicans that are gonna go vote for Brian Kemp and then say to Hersh, you know, in, in this sort of tribal partisan atmosphere where yeah. people are going to say, no, I'm just not going to vote for, I'm going to leave that spot blank. I, I can't believe they'd actually be, maybe there are Kemp, Kemp uh, Warnock voters out there. Um, and we saw that, you know, for example, in 2018 with Doug Ducey, popular mm-hmm. incumbent, incumbent Republican governor, and Martha McSally, you know, Ducey won by 12 or 14 points and she failed. Now, mm-hmm. I would argue that Kirsten Cinema is more ideologically uh, a fit for Arizona than Raphael Warnock is for Georgia. But he is an incumbent, uh, so he has an advantage of incumbency to the extent you can you can say that in in a year like this year, where uh, being the in party is is you know almost a in in many ways a drag. Yeah. Um, one uh, one thing that's an interesting dynamic, and and uh, you know I feel like you made mention of it, has been this relationship between uh, Rick Scott at the head of the NRSC, uh, Mitch McConnell, and and his own. Uh, you know, uh, fundraising operation uh, and the way that these primaries kind of played out, which often had pretty expensive races, you know, certainly in Ohio and Pennsylvania, yeah. where at the end of the day, you know, you had uh, guys who didn't have a lot of money and hadn't had the political background of building up a fundraising operation. Um, and Donald Trump basically gets a lot of these small dollar don- donations that flow to him instead of going to these various candidates and has been uh, to this point really reluctant, it seems like to uh, put any money behind them in a, in a situation where a couple of these folks don't get, get across the finish line um, with a victory is part of the blame game that would come after that. Basically one of, well, Trump helped pick these candidates, but then he basically left them under for their own devices in large part um, w- without giving them the kind of financial backing that he maybe could have in order to achieve a Republican Senate. Maybe, but again, it depends on the outcome. I mean, do Republicans, yeah. do they win the Senate and pick up a seat, but they don't, you know, a couple of other folks lose? Or does it, you know, if it stays 50-50, if Republicans don't win the Senate, then yeah, there, there will be recriminations. There will be, you know, you'll be able to pinpoint exactly where the Republicans fell down in a year that, um, you know, they probably should have won control of the Senate. So, uh, and and part of that will be Trump. There's no question. I think probably more on the on the nomination side than the money side. Yeah. Um, but we'll see. I mean, again, I I still am not convinced though that like if things had played out differently, that you would have had you would have had a better set of candidates. I mean, maybe you could say Pennsylvania, but I also think that you know uh, there's in in a lot of these cases it's it's kind of a coin flip. I mean, it's not like. Sure, J.D. Vance is a political neophyte, but I think that, you know, Josh Mandel has proven himself that he can lose the state of Ohio. <laughs> so, uh, you know, this is not a, uh, you know, an, an either or here necessarily. Um, you mentioned, of course, the the polling averages, which, which is central to everyone's knowledge of the importance of real clear politics this time of year. Is There's here been a number. <laughs> here it comes. No, there's been a number of articles lately uh, about the difficulty and uh, levels of inaccuracy 
of uh, pollsters in this moment. And, and, you know, you had that Times article just the other day about how few people will actually respond when they are called. When you're looking at those averages, how much are you taking it as being this is where the race is? And how much is in the back of your head just sort of going, yeah, this is maybe where the race is. But in my own head, I'm personally shading at a couple points in a certain direction because I think that this is, you know, we have a problem when it comes to polling in America. Right. So and we we started seeing this a few weeks ago. Nate Cohn at The New York Times wrote, you know, are the polls wrong again? And and that set off a whole series of articles basically asking the same question. Time magazine, you know, across the board, everyone's sort of writing this idea. OK, are the polls off again? And And it's unknowable, right? It's mm-hmm. unknowable. So. Um, I do think, though, there has been a loss of trust in polling over the last few cycles. I mean, there's just no question about it. I think it's wrong to say that all polling is broken because there have been some pollsters like Trafalgar and others who have who have been way more accurate. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so there have been some pollsters. And remember, in 2016, you know, Trafalgar, he shows up and he's he's got this sort of, you know, uh, unorthodox method of of trying to figure out uh, what's going on there and how to, how to poll these races. And he was derided and dismissed by the mainstream media and all the polling experts. And he turned out to be way more accurate mm-hmm. than, than they were in 2016. Now he's considered, you know, an A, a plus pollster or a pollster by 538. And he's uh, so you do have, and you've, you've got some other polling groups that have done good work over the last three cycles, but you've also got the, you know, you've got the, the, university funded places. You've got some of the big media organizations. Everyone points to, you know, the Washington Post poll, Biden wins Wisconsin by 17 points. I mean, mm-hmm. those kind of, of big misses. And so it does beg the question, okay, where are we exactly? And so one of the things that we've done is we went back and looked at all these individual states and the races in 2016, 2018, 2020, and, and said, okay, how far were the polls off? Did they underestimate one party or another? And by how much? Um, just as another way of of sort of trying to answer that question, right? If the so if the pattern holds over the last three cycles uh, in these races, you know what would be the final outcome? And and we have a chart on real clear politics you can find. And it says you know for today, you know twenty three days from election, this is what the you know the polls in uh, in let's say uh, Pennsylvania underestimated mm-hmm. the support. I think it's about by six five and a half or six points. Right. So that race is a is a three and a half point race right now. So if the polls are off in the same way they have been over the last three cycles in Pennsylvania, Mehmet Oz would be ahead by a couple mm-hmm. points in that race. Mm-hmm. Um, Ohio, for example, they've got it. a You know, our average has it a one one and a half point race right now. J.D. Vance is leading. Ohio has been one of those states that, you know, the Midwest in general has been ground zero for polling misses. So, you know, that was a Trump plus eight state underestimated Republican support by nine and a half points. So you've got J.D. Vance winning Ohio uh, by perhaps double digits. Mm-hmm. In a place like Nevada, though, where you've got Adam Laxalt leading by a couple points, polls have underestimated over the last three cycles. They've underestimated Democratic support by about yeah. tenths of a percentage point, right? And that's the remnants of the Harry Reid machine. They always seem to, you know, Democrats always seem to be able to turn out uh, the Culinary Workers Union and the like in, in Clark County mm-hmm. and, and overperform the polls. So in that race... You know, Adam Laxalt's, he's up a point and a half on our average. Polls have overestimated, uh, you know, or underestimated Democrats by about a, almost a point. So that's probably, you know, if, if that holds, that's a really, really close race. And then in Georgia is the other one where, again, we were just talking about, is it really going to be, 
the situation, the polls were did not, they were even basically in Georgia. They were actually spot on over mm-hmm. the last three cycles. And so you look at, at Warnock's lead at, I think it's like three and a half, 3.8%. Um, and you got to think to yourself, okay, well, then maybe that is three and a half percent. Mm-hmm. That really is where the thing is, the, the race is at, even though, again, Brian Kemp's leading by seven or eight points. So that's just another way that we've tried to address the issue of, of whether the polls are, um, are accurate or not. And if, if they, if they aren't accurate, you know, which, which way might they be off? But again, this is all going to be unknowable. And again, we're going to wake up November 9th and, and have a sense of who got it right and who got it wrong. And that's one of the reasons, by the way, that we, we announced uh, last week that we're going to be doing a, this, this Real Clear Politics Polling Accountability Initiative. And we're going to be rolling that out over the, in the coming couple of weeks and then taking a look at poll, so pollsters' historical performance over the last few cycles and, and moving ahead. Because the one thing that has been missing is, is accountability. I mean, the same mm-hmm. folks that, that have been off over the last few cycles, nothing happens. There's no, there, there's no accountability. There's no consequences for being uh, you know, that wrong. And that's just that, you know, that's not tolerable. It undermines public trust and it's something we got to fix. I was listening the other day to, uh, one of the, one of the very prominent barstool sports podcasts, pardon my take, they track over the course of the season, the performance of their bets. So everybody's making four picks basically every week, uh, for the NFL, uh, and uh, you know, they're they're picking a, a favorite, an underdog, an, an over, and an under, and they track their performance. Uh, and they have a guy who comes on and tells them their performance. And you know, some of the, sometimes some of these guys go over and four, you know, and and I <laughs> I applaud them as degenerate gamblers for owning their mistakes and right. and actually being public about it. And as I was listening to it the other day, and and I had just been having a conversation with someone about polling, I was like, we don't even have this level of accountability from pollsters, whose whose words we're supposed to, you know, we build entire articles and narratives uh, based on the assumptions that flow out of these pollsters into our conversation, and yet they don't own their own mistakes, they don't own their own uh, failures, uh, even to that level of a degree. Is there a way to change that? And, and is this accountability project that you're going to do going to change that or aimed at changing that? that yes, that is what we're going to try and do. And, and that's, again, take a look at these pollsters and, and measure them simply on accuracy. How accurate were you? How, how accurately did your polling reflect the outcome on Election Day? Mm-hmm. And because that's that's the only metric that really matters. That's the only metric that the public cares about. That's the metric uh, that that will rebuild public trust if you're to be more accurate. I mean, we really want this to be, uh, you know, a, a constructive thing for the polling industry because it's in everybody's best interest to be as accurate as possible and not to be, uh, you know, way off the mark. And and again, to your point, some of these some of these polls that are uh, that are that are inaccurate. Uh, they get a lot of attention. I mean, they really do. The the media sort of hones in on them, generate headlines, shift narratives, and you've even got polling operations out there this cycle that are that are simply trying to to manipulate uh, mm-hmm. not only media coverage but but some of the averages. I mean, you've got this group, Center Street Pack, that it's funded by you know it's run by Joe Walsh, uh, who's a sort of a you know a serious never Trumper, and another guy. And, and they're putting out polls. You know, they've got Tim Ryan up 11 points in Ohio and Fetterman up 19 and, you know, Mark Kelly up 15 or something. And they've actually gone, they're on record endorsing those candidates. Um, 
you know, and, and some people are including those in their, in their averages and their models, which is insane. So I think we do have to, um, part of what we're going to do is, is try and, uh, hold some of these pollsters accountable. Um, that's the only way that I think, uh, you're going to get any sort of movement toward, mm-hmm. toward, you know, more accountability. Otherwise it's just the same old, you know, it's the same, it'll be the same two years from now and four years from now. And, and, and folks will just continue to do what they're doing without, uh, really reforming or taking a seriously hard look at how they can, how they can be better and be more accurate. As someone who's uh, more in the business of focusing on, on policy making and, uh, and idea based debates in between elections, as opposed to elections, I have to say it is constantly infuriating to me to have the experience of seeing a pollster totally botch an election prediction um, and then be used to make an argument on the side of a policy debate six months later. Right. You know? <laughs> and it's just yeah. like, I mean, is, is, is everybody taking crazy pills here? You know, <laughs> not right. telling you, you can't trust them on this stuff. Um, yeah. One area that is of particular focus for this kind of narrative uh, uh, conversation that is based around um, elections and polling is obviously the Hispanic vote in America, which has been at the center of uh, a, a optimistic Republican frame of what's been going on and has really been seen as be offsetting perhaps uh, losses that have happened among upper income and college educated women uh, on uh, in the Republican coalition. Uh, what is the challenge when it comes to getting accurate depictions of what Hispanic voters want? Um, because it does seem like there's there's been more attention to them paid to them by pollsters and by people who are trying to figure out kind of what's your priority set, uh, especially in the wake of the result in, in Virginia, which it seemed like snuck up a lot on on uh, uh, the uh, sort of dominant uh, corporate media. Uh, do you think that that's something that is improving? Is that tracking in the right direction in terms of pollsters being able to figure out what Hispanic voters want? I think so. I mean, I, I think there is a general sense, you know, the media often treats Hispanics as as this monolith, right, and uh, and views them in that way. And it's actually obviously more complicated than that. And, and it's complicated geographically, right? You've got the you know Cuban American population in Miami, which is different from the Hispanic uh, Mexican American population in in Nevada and Arizona, which is uh, you know probably different from from some of the Hispanic voters in in Georgia or in mm-hmm. Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin. Um, but generally, I think I think the data is pretty clear, though. I mean, uh, that that Republicans have improved their uh, have improved their span, standing with Hispanic voters, and obviously, you know, that happened with Trump in twenty twenty in South Texas, and we've seen the we've seen that continue uh, through this election cycle. Uh, these are counties and areas that haven't been won by Republicans since Reconstruction. You've now got uh, you know Hispanic uh, female candidates there running strong campaigns. Um, and so I think it is true. And that was one of the, we'll see. Uh, but I think the appeal the Republicans have, you know, there was always a sense that, well, Hispanic voters are more culturally conservative on issues like marriage and abortion, and therefore they fit better into the GOP coalition. But I, I honestly think it's, it, it's more as it is with everyone this time, broad based across it's, it's economics. I mean, it's class. Mm -hmm. These are, you know, Inflation hits the working class the hardest. The people who are less concerned about inflation are the ones who have the most money, right? The upper class, which 
you know, at this point in the game are still are, are Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, Republicans have really become the party of the working class and are talking to those issues. And that's why I think Hispanic voters, among others, have responded because they're, again, the data is pretty clear. It is by far the most urgent, most important issue on the minds of voters. It's not even close. It's 75, 80, 85, 90 percent. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, Republicans are speaking to that and, and Democrats are focused as you might expect. I mean, it's the economy and inflation is not a good talking point for them. Mm-hmm. Um, you saw uh, Michael Bennett on TV trying to, you know, answer why why yeah. the Inflation Reduction <laughs> Act hasn't reduced inflation as it's named and supposed to do. And he said, look, it takes a while for these things to kick in. I mean, it was kind of painful to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, so Democrats are focused on on trying to motivate their base through abortion and other issues. The problem is, is that makes them look out of touch to independents and, and others who, who want them to talk about what they're going to do to help, uh, you know, lower the price of gas, lower the cost of food. Mm-hmm. So we've been through this experience before. Historically, you have a, a Democrat come in, engage in some overreach that it's happened in different varieties under Bill Clinton, uh, under Obama, and now under Joe Biden. Uh, and, you know, they head into a midterm where it looks like they're going to get smacked. Uh, and uh, and we saw that in 94 and we saw that in 2010. However, one of the things that seems to be seems to have been different about the 2010 situation is that as much as the Tea Party changed the conversation in Washington, it didn't really have that significant of an impact when it came to fiscal policy. You know, you, you had a handful of wins and you had some, some, you know, uh, bigger priorities, but you didn't really see the kind of change on the scale that they demanded, you know, and you certainly didn't see that flow into uh, 2012 in the way that a lot of people anticipated that energy to flow in part because of picking Mitt Romney, which, you know, that that's worth another whole podcast. But the the thing, the, the thing that's interesting to me about this election is, okay, let's assume that we're about to see the same kind of thing. How should Republicans approach holding on to this coalition that you're describing uh, and speaking to these working class priorities, because as much as they can talk about it when they're out of power, when they get power, you know, they may not be able to do as much as they'd like to other than just block things that Joe Biden would like to do. Right. And that's, I kind of touched on this earlier, right? So say Republicans have a good night in the house and win 25 house seats and, and one or two Senate seats, take control of both chambers. Um, what can they get done legislatively with those kind of margins? Could Kevin McCarthy keep everybody together and, and push some stuff through the House? Sure. Could Mitch McConnell use reconciliation to push it through the Senate? Sure. It's possible. And what happens? Joe Biden's sitting there with a veto pen for the next two years. Yeah. So there's nothing that's going to get done that Joe Biden doesn't want to get done because um, <clears throat> they won't be able to override any vetoes. Uh, so, you know, legislatively, it's going to be difficult, I think, for Republicans uh, Joe Biden's not going to sign off on a tax cut. He's not going to sign off on any of these things. And that, so then it comes down to in the, in the House, oversight obviously is something that Republicans would engage in pretty uh, robustly. I think there's even talk of impeachment, uh, mm-hmm. whether it's Joe Biden or Mayorkas or, or somebody. Uh, I think there is anger out there, and I think Republicans – uh, one Democrats or, might give up my at this point. They might. They might. Who knows? In terms of a job. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and there might be some things that they can do, reg, you know, some regulatory stuff through some of the committees. Um, but and, and, and in the Senate, uh, it would be all about judges. I mean, taking yeah. back control of the Judiciary Committee. And that's not nothing for, for Republican voters. But to your point, uh, if 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 the, uh, you know, rationale for this election, putting Republicans in power 
in the House and the Senate is is to, you know, fix the economy, fix inflation, you know, get this stuff uh, worked out. You know, I'm not sure they're going to be able to do a whole yeah. lot uh, yeah. on that issue, on those issues, uh, given given the current environment. And then, and then you'll have, you know, 2024, the, the Democrats say, well, the Republicans have had Congress for the last two years and haven't done anything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Republicans will be put in a position of saying, yeah, we had Congress, but we had a Democratic president. That's why we need, you know, we need a Republican president in 2024 mm-hmm. so we can really get stuff done. So it'll be the same arguments that we've been hearing for the last few cycles. So uh, final and most important uh, question, uh, is Geno Smith a guy? <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> think you, do you think you got a guy there? <laughs> I, listen, my, my, yes, I, I, I'm, I'm a buyer of Geno right now. And I got to tell you, you know, when Russ left, obviously – the 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 conventional wisdom is you need an elite quarterback to really win in this in this league, and I sort of bought into that. But Gino, when when he was in last year, when Russ was hurt, didn't play bad. He had a couple turnovers, mm-hmm. that, you know, at, at the end of a game. But I mean, he played pretty well. And this year, he's been playing very well. And you know, when you score whatever it was, uh, forty two points or whatever it is against the you know New Orleans Saints, you should win those games. You score thirty plus points. You should win those games. Your defense should be able to to allow you to win those games. So, look, three and three, we're uh, we're tied for the lead in the NFC West, along with a couple other teams. So, uh, so far, so good, and and we've got some work to do. I I, I buy into Geno. I think that I think that uh, he he may make the calculation uh, um, very interesting in this in this coming off season. So and uh, you'll appreciate yeah. this, Ben. When when he was named the starter of the Seahawks, the New York Post ran a headline that said. Former Jets and Giants flop, now starter for Seahawks, which was, you know, classic New York Post. But uh, that's how they feel about him in, in, in New York. But um, he's a different quarterback now. He looks good. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the coastal switch was what he needed. So, yeah. um, Tom, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today and to walk us through all of this. Absolutely. I read with interest this comment uh, the other day from Barack Obama that he gave in a podcast interview with the uh, Pod Save America folks, he said uh, Democrats can be buzzkills, right? Sometimes people just want to not feel as if they are walking on eggshells. They want some acknowledgement that life is messy and that all of us at any given moment can say things the wrong way, make mistakes. He also said, I think we do get into trouble. Look, I used to get into trouble whenever, as you guys know well, whenever I got a little too professorial and, you know, started when I was behind the podium as opposed to when I was in a crowd. There were times where I'd get uh, and sound like I was giving a bunch of policy gobbledygook. Uh, I think where we get into trouble sometimes is where we try to suggest that some groups are more because they have historically have been victimized more, that somehow they have a status that's different than other people. And we're going around scolding folks if they don't use exactly the right phrase. This is all very interesting stuff, but it certainly is not in keeping with the approach that Barack Obama had when he was president. It makes me wonder why we didn't hear more of this when he was in office, as opposed to only hearing it now when he's out of office. And I think a big part of that is that if he had been saying these types of things when he was in office, he would have been riling up, I think, a lot of backlash from the very leftists who put him there. Uh, the people who are were his friends in the media and the like. 
Look, it's all fine to engage in sort of a historically revisionist approach uh, to a presidency. Virtually every president does it. But it's one of these situations where I think, unfortunately, because Barack Obama is only now saying these types of things in formats and to interviewers who, quite frankly, are are really only speaking to those who already support and like him, uh, then he really isn't addressing the, the real problems and the challenges that are faced by many in his party who are still engaged in that same very, very same behavior in ways that has only been to the benefit of Republicans and conservatives in pushing back against this kind of woke, uh, overwhelming, uh, narrative-dominating approach that today's progressives engage in quite regularly. Look, the left in America is clearly the aggressor in the culture wars at this point, uh, and I think that everyone can see that. It's also something that doesn't really play to your benefit. It tends to backfire. It tends to lead to backlash, um, and it ultimately tends uh, to prove in many ways and has certainly historically before uh, to be a perfect victory when you can take down or take out various people uh, through cancellation uh, or through undermining their business, through targeting them in the courts and with regulatory uh, approaches. Uh, it's always something that tends to be uh, a real illusion when it comes to having some type of permanent control over the way that American culture works. These types of things just don't happen here. It's, it's good to hear this kind of language from Barack Obama. I only think that he should have been saying this a lot earlier. And perhaps if he had, then his own party could have avoided going down the path that they've gone today where they are completely owned by this woke corporatist approach to politics in a way that I think is going to hamper them, not just now, but in the years to come. I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast. We'll be back soon with more to dive back into the fray. chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy, and me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.